Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time, we're going back to cover the sequel to Wrestling's original Supercard. It's Starcade 1984, the million-dollar match. Kyush, was this show worth a million dollars? This show wasn't worth a goddamn penny that somebody scraped up out of a sewer grate. This, Steve... This is the nightmare I have every time that you say we're going to do some old NWA wrestling. It's just going to be a bunch of jabronis and black tights doing boring shit. Yeah, I would say Starcade 83 really exceeded our expectations. This one, oh boy. Um, like, not a good follow-up to the original this year. It's It's impossible to believe this is the same company as the one that we watched a year ago. The one that was brimming with superstars, like the best of the best from every territory across the United States. This is not that. Well, do you look at the roster? If you look at who was in the big matches the previous year, a lot of the guys who were in the top matches are not around anymore. Um, like Harley Race is in semi-retirement. He's not on this show. Briscoe brothers have gone to the WWF when Vince bought Georgia. Um uh valentine and piper are both in the wwf now steamboat is still around but this is pretty much it for him he's about to leave for new york too so a combination of their roster just kind of aging into retirement and getting raided by vince has really reduced their power um yeah 84 was really not a strong year for crockett it's dusty's first year with the book and it's taking him some time to get the pieces in place. 85 and 86 will be much stronger years for this company. Yeah, it's probably worth mentioning that five months from now, a little-known thing called WrestleMania happens. So in the previous year, it's just been Vince going, like, grocery shopping in everybody's territories, picking up the best for his supercard. So I, I guess I get it. But even with that said, there's still talent in this company. They're still what will eventually become the four horsemen here. There's they're still over acts. They're still they do still bring in people from various territories across the country. It's just that forever whatever reason, they're booked to do terrible stuff and wrestle the worst matches and they just do a bad job. Yeah, I mean, I think to an extent the novelty of the super show has just worn off in the second year. The first year it was just exciting to have all the stuff. The second year, we see how little substance there is. None of these matches have real finishes. None of them are the conclusions to any storylines because they're still making their money taking these matches on the road. That's still the business model. I do also wonder if maybe, like, to some extent, you could say that some of the territories were, like, sending... I don't know if they were, like, sending their top guys to Starcade to get them, like, exposure on the show or to, like, just to trade like the NWA used to do. But as WWE starts to advance and buy up territories and, like, become this monolith, people start to get a little cagier about lending out their best assets. You know what I mean? Like, eh, maybe for your super show where you're trying to go national, I don't want to send you one of the Von Erich yeah. boys or one of the like my top dudes. Maybe instead you get Brian Adias and you get uh, Elijah Akeem instead. Yeah. Until the year after this, when all the territories get together for like one show to try to fight Vince. And it's awesome, but it immediately falls apart because they all try to sign each other's talent away from each other. That's the thing. It's like maybe they had a genuine shot at fighting Vince. But yeah, 
20 cooks can't produce a good meal. Like, it doesn't work that way. So, one year after the original Starcade, where Ric Flair beat Harley Race for the title, uh, Flair is still the NWA champion. He lost the belt to Harley in New Zealand and won it back a few days later in Singapore. Those title changes weren't acknowledged until many years later. Um, I think those were retroactively acknowledged by WCW when Flair came back from the WWF and they wanted to add two title reigns to, you know, say he was a, you know, eight time world champion or whatever without like actually including his WWF title reigns. So those title reigns were rediscovered subsequent uh, many years later as the WWF has now seemingly discovered another title reign for him. And they're billing him as a 17 time world champion. I think someone counted one time and they said that realistically you could call him like a 28 time world champion. Cause that was his thing is he would go into territories that had no TV or no connection anywhere else. He'd lose the belt the first day, win it back the next day and then leave. Yeah. No, there's a, yeah, there's a ton of these where he lost the belt, lost the belt in Puerto Rico to somebody, not even Carlos Colon, Jack Benino or something like that. I can't think of the guy's name, but yeah, he would do this all the time. Um, the unacknowledged NWA title change was a regular trope. Yeah, Harley did it. Luthez did it. That's just that was the business back. That's how you popped a territory. Yeah, the belt came in. You put your big guy up against it. He'd beat the champ, but then it would turn out that there was some like his foot was under the rope or something. So you do the rematch. The champ retains. Moving on. But then every single time the champion would come to town after that, you would believe that your guy was going to win. Yep. And that's the idea. It's just you keep the mystery alive. Like maybe our hometown guy can beat Luthez, can beat the ma- beat the crazy, amazing Ric Flair. Maybe he can do it. And then they would do it like that's it's smart. It, that's the whole idea of wrestling, of the house show circuit, of touring, of everything was built around this exact idea. This stretches back to the 1910s. The idea of the traveling champion. And he also lost the belt to Kerry Von Erich at the Kevin Von Erich tribute show uh, back in May and then won it back in Japan a couple weeks after that. That was just, you know, favor of Fritz and feel good moment. I do love that that was the uh, I'm sorry your son died title change. Yeah, the only we, one of those in history. We were definitely going to put the belt on the kid and now he's dead. So, like, we can let Kerry have it for a minute. <laughs> Um, they've got a huge main event this year with Flair defending against Dusty Rhodes. Um, in the middle of that, they've got Joe Frazier as the special guest referee. Doesn't seem like there was a really like hot issue here between Flair and Dusty. They're both baby faces. Like there's a little tension. They both got big egos, but it's not like the year after this where they have a super hot storyline. Yeah. We're kind of just promoting the idea of like the super match between baby faces here. Which is fine. It's not awesome, necessarily. Like, once the match actually starts, there's not much heat. And in the South, face-versus-face matches don't really work because the fans want someone to die. Yes. So it's hard to sell this. So it makes Southern wrestling great. Yeah. If it's two guys you like, it's like, oh, what's the point of this shit? Um, Most of the big developments in wrestling that have happened since the last Starcade happened outside of Crockett. Um, Hulk Hogan is the WWF champion. Um, Vince McMahon's taking the WWF national. 
he bought out uh, the Georgia Territory to get their TBS time slot. That was uh, the infamous Black Saturday. Um, we know that's not going to turn out uh, very well um, for the WWF or for TBS. The fans revolt pretty much immediately. They don't want to see this crappy Northern wrestling show. They want their Southern wrestling. So pretty quickly, um, Turner to screw over Vince um, sells time slots to Bill Watts. And I think one to Ole Anderson, who's started a new Georgia wrestling territory. And we know that ultimately Crockett will end up buying this territory from Vince um, by the time slot from Vince in 85. And that's when, Crockett goes national on the Superstation, but that hasn't happened yet. Yep. I, uh, it's so definitive that, like, people still talk about it to this day. Like, I always remember my dad saying that wrestling died on Black Black Saturday. It's like, fuck, man. Like, this scarred people. Yeah. I, I mean, Wrestling at 6.05 on Saturday was an institution in the South. Like, Georgia Championship Wrestling had been on the air in that time slot, I think since like 72, sounds right. So 12 years running, people have tuned in at 6.05 to see their Southern wrestling. And this Georgia had the probably the best TV of any territory at that point. Mid-South was good too, but like, the Georgia show was really good studio wrestling, really good matches. And then Vince comes in with his showbiz Northern wrestling. And it's just like highlights of, of arena matches. It's not a live show. It's a show that you can already see somewhere else on syndication earlier in the week. Like it's a total flop. If only I can think of some other WWE programming that reminds me of anyway, uh, this is, yeah, it, it's not even a question. First of all, Northern Wrestling, it, it's not just a stylistic difference. It's like an entire world of difference, especially at this point. Like, it was more poorly lit. It wasn't set up right. They were all job matches. Like, it, it was shitty programming. Nobody watched it even in the North. Like, Vince just paid people to take it because it was a less good product. It's amazing that he got away with it. I mean, what he did manage to do is take a bunch of other people's talent. As we covered, they've lost a lot of their top guys to Vince. Um, should also point out that Ole Anderson, who will make a number of appearances on the Starcade podcasts, <laughs> um, was a part owner of that Georgia territory. I think it was him and the Briscoes and Jim Barnett. And Ole didn't want to sell his shares and I think had a meeting with Vince and Linda where he may have called Linda a very rude name and thus was blackballed for life by Vince. Yes. Um, Every son who's ever booked a national wrestling territory has eventually come to WWE with the exception of Ole Anderson, who I don't know exactly what he called her, but holy shit, Vince still holds a grudge all these years later. Something you are not allowed to call Vince McMahon's wife is what he called her. Holy shit. Um, yeah, like you think about it, he's never been in any DVDs. Nope. Never inducted into the Hall of Fame. Nope. His name has never really been spoken on WWE television. And I mean, like, 
for he has an an incredibly important place in wrestling history. Yeah. Like it's a you have to go out of your way to avoid talking about him when you talk about like the Four Horsemen and WCW and the NWA in the 80s and the 70s. He was a very important figure, but they somehow manage it. Man, Holy Anderson was a miserable old prick. Yeah, that's the other thing, is that people are more than willing to go along with that because everyone hates Ole Anderson. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody was shedding any tears for him. Sheesh. And yet, he will show up over and over in these Starcade podcasts as the guy they always turned to when they didn't know who could take over the book. Uh, what about Ole? We'd get Ole again. I mean, Ole won't crash the ship. He's, I mean, it'll suck, but it won't bury us. <laughs> Um, yeah, Dusty is booking, so he's both the top babyface and the booker, but surprisingly, Booker Man doesn't book himself to win the title here. Can't the explain that. The fascinating thing about Dusty Rhodes is that despite the fact that he is the booker for long stretches of NWA history, he has the 34th longest total time with the yeah. title of anyone ever to hold the belt out of 53. He- he hogged the spotlight, but he never monopolized the title. Um, yeah, I mean, I think he knew the money was in him chasing the title. Like, he, Dusty's not a long-term champion. The money is in Dusty trying to catch flair and yeah. fighting through things. I guess the other thing is, the NWA title, the NWA board of directors still has enough juice at this point that you have to respect the opinions of the other promoters. And... Flair is a much better NWA champion than Dusty. Flair is going to be much better working heel and touring the territories than Dusty is. Absolutely. Dusty's not that guy that you bring in to, like, have your top guy beat. Like, Dusty comes into Papa Town by cutting promos and having fun. Like, you don't want to see... He's going to overshadow your territory's top guy. That's not the idea here. Yeah, whereas Flair has been doing amazing stuff in world class in particular for the previous couple of years, feuding with the Von Erics. That Absolutely. always stands out to me as some of the best stuff from these territory days. You know, let me list some of the guys who have more combined days as NWA champion than Dusty Rhodes. Um, Ron and Killing. Severn. Yeah, yeah, Dan Severn. AJ Styles. Um, let's see. Tim Storm. Rob Conway. <laughs> Jeff Jarrett, of course. Uh, Who's the current NWA champion? Uh, Nick Aldis. Still? Yep. Wow. Um, there are nine people with over a thousand days with the belt. Uh, three of them are within the last five years. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Does that that timing barely even works? Yes. Oh, How many so- days have there been in the past five years? Yeah, there's, so there's Nick Aldis, Adam Pierce, and, well, I guess not five years. Jeff Jarrett's yeah, was, the other yeah, one. Yeah, I was going to say, like, there have only been 1,800 days in the past five years. Okay, that makes, let's say 15 years. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, the yeah, because how long was Severn? It was Severn champ for, like, four years? Yeah, 1,500 days. Yeah. And then Aldis had it for 1,000, Jarrett had it for 1,000, Adam Pierce had it for 1,000. Tim Storm had it for 400. Oh, boy. Yeah, somehow this title is still kicking around. I mean, the NWA still functionally exists. If anything, it's as powerful now as it's been oh, in it's 40 the best years. It's, it's the best it's been since, yeah, I mean, since they split with WCW. 
seeing AEW working with them now is such a fascinating thing, isn't it? Like, just the idea of, like, this is basically what every major company does is they get to a certain point and their national exposure, and then they're like, let's bring in the NWA belts for credibility. I mean, you know in his heart, Cody's just a little NWA mark. I wonder if he's just biding his time till he can buy the trademark and just turn it into AWNWA. I'm a little surprised he hasn't. I mean, he got them to put the belt on him. That's a good point. Yeah. All right, so to get to the show, it's uh, Thanksgiving night, 1984, so that's Thursday, November 22nd. Uh, we're at the Greensboro Coliseum in Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, sellout crowd in attendance. Could not find a um, like number on how many tickets they sold for closed circuit. I mean, that's I would, almost impossible. Like, yeah. I would expect it probably did pretty well with Flair and Dusty on top. Probably. Um, we've once again got Gordon Soley and Bob Cottle on commentary. They look a hundred years older this time than they did last time, except for Gordon Soley's toupee, which looks great. <laughs> oh, uh, they kind of cut right in with a replay of Flair beating Harley from the previous year. I kind of dug that. All it was missing was a voiceover that said previously on Starcade. I really liked it because it kind of made it seem like this whole show, they, they're kind of trying to establish, like, a Starcade universe, right? Like, they're like, all right, we're going back in the locker room just like we did in the past Starcade, And we're, there's a, a direct line. Like, it could, if this was a month after the original, you would have believed it. Because at the end of the last one, Dusty said, I'm coming for that belt, Flair. The way they book back then, they kind of are booking year to year. Not that much has happened. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, spent, spent the whole year getting to Dusty and Flair. Basically. So here we are. So I really like them doing that just as a reminder. Like, it's been a whole year, but this is where we left off. Ric Flair got made as the top guy, and here's Dusty to claim his piece. And then Gordon and Bob welcome us to the show. They hype up Flair versus Dusty. Then we go to the ring for the opening match for the NWA Junior Heavyweight Championship. We've got Mike Davis versus Denny Brown. I have never heard of either of these guys. (laughs) Well, Mike Davis was a member of the Army of Darkness for Kevin Sullivan. That's cool, I guess. Davis is the defending champion. He won the belt in October from Hector Guerrero. Uh, Guerrero was awarded the belt after winning a fictitious tournament. Because the reigning champion, Les Thornton, had signed with the WWF after McMahon bought Georgia. Thornton also won the belt in a fictitious tournament. <laughs> you know, all those tournaments that they just had going on back in the day. Like, the funny thing was, at this time, you could literally just say that. Because yeah. fans knew that there were parts of the country where wrestling was happening, that they would have no way of knowing what was going on there. So of course, like yeah, I just went back down to Decatur, and you know, I won the I won the big tournament they had there, and here I am with the belt. That's a lot of fictitious tournaments in a short period of time. Well, you know, yeah, it is. Uh, like uh, this title has been vacated more, maybe more than any other belt in the history of wrestling. Does this end up being part of um, the J Crown? Yes, it does. <laughs> they just did they just forget it existed. 
Well, what happened was technically there's a Japanese version of this belt that's going on at the exact same time. Uh, so technically, I mean, it wouldn't I, have surprised me at all if this belt just like migrated to Japan or Mexico or somewhere where they take junior wrestling more seriously. Well, what happens is they have Tiger Mask win the belt, but then he wrestles a match for WWF. So they discredit him and strip him of the belt, but he keeps defending it. So, like, he keeps defending it in Japan, and then they just retire it in America, but it still exists in Japan. So they just decide to meld those two together later on when that belt actually becomes credible again. Um, They just kind of do, like, small guy babyface wrestling with lots of hip tosses and arm drags and that kind of thing. Brown gets thrown out to the floor. He hurts his back. Davis works on the back. Davis hits a back suplex, bridges it into a pin, and gets the three count. But it turns out that Brown got his shoulder off the mat, and Davis's were down, so Brown wins. The announcers are very confused by this. They're not just confused by this. They seem, my favorite part is they seem openly confused by which guy is which, which is the funniest (laughs) part to me. I mean, I have trouble keeping them. I have trouble telling them apart, but, like, I don't know these guys. Yeah, this is a dude with a mullet one and dude with a mullet two, and they look exactly the same. (sighs) Did they at least wear different color trunks? Yeah, one of them was blue and one was brown. They both look bad, okay? I feel like if I was the announcer, I would write down on my, like, sheet, like, what color trunks they were wearing. Also, I'm pretty sure the announcer announces the wrong winner the first time. Oh, yeah. Like, and this then was corrects all himself. Yeah. But, I mean, like, even the wrong winner that he was supposed to be announcing the wrong winner. Like, like he reverses yeah. it twice. And then the announcers are like, I don't, I don't, okay. <laughs> they didn't smarten the announcers up back then. Like, they don't know the finishes, do they? No. And the best part is, is like, you can tell that Gordon Soley has spent the majority of his career not looking at a camera. Because he's so goddamn awkward. Whenever anything goes wrong, he just stares directly into the camera and is like, well, okay, well, moving on. He just has like this sickly smile on his face like, they told me to smile. (laughs) Gordon's fine as long as you keep feeding him gin and tonics. Yeah. Towards the end of the night, he's doing a lot better, you can tell. Um, we go back to Flair's dressing room where Tony Schiavone you know, lets us know he'll be doing interviews from back in the dressing room. I guess this feels like it was a Starcade special that they didn't. I mean, they didn't have other big shows that were on TV or closed circuit. So this was the only time you were going to get back in the dressing room. I like this one a little bit less than the previous years because the previous years was like it literally seemed like they just sent Tony into the dressing room and there was just a bunch of wrestlers wandering around getting dressed ready yeah. for their match. And he'd just be like inter- like interviewing a guy while he puts his boots on. That was cool. This one felt more like modern. Yeah. Like it was more like, all right, here comes Ric Flair in his full robe and outfit ready to cut a promo. Yeah, did not feel as authentic this time. It was still good, but it just didn't have that same punch to it. And then we've got Mr. Ito versus Brian Adidas. Yes. Brian Adidas. Ladies and gentlemen, somebody at some point misunderstood that his name was not Brian Adidas, but Brian Adidas. And he's uh, from World Class Championship Wrestling. He actually grew up with the Von Erich family. Like, he's part of the family basically 
So he wrestles this show, which is obviously the biggest show he's ever been a part of. This is the thing that people would know him from. Unfortunately, when he tries to put it on his resume to get booked other places, they don't believe him because he's listed on this card as Brian Adidas, not Brian Adidas. And then Adidas, the shoe company, sues him for using their name. You can't make this shit up, people. They accidentally ruined this guy's life. With one letter. Unbelievable. For this three-minute match, which he wins with an airplane spin. He looked great. He looked like a star. Oh, yeah. He was like a, a national shot putter and stuff. Like, he was he was definitely one of the Von Erich boys. He's the one that Carrie would cruise for pussy with. Except, well, actually, Brian Adias is one of the first openly gay wrestlers ever. So yeah. probably not would've, so much. Well, would have made a great wingman, then. Oh, for fuck's sake, yeah. Next up. We've got a Florida heavyweight championship match. Jesse Barr defending against Mike Graham. Um, Jesse Barr, probably best known for playing Jimmy Jack Funk in the WWF. I was actually pretty impressed by his heel work here. Actually, yeah, he, he was good. And Mike Graham, I've never been a huge fan of any of the Grahams, really, as legendary as they absolutely are. But, like, this is easily the best match of the first half of this show like yeah. there's some competent stuff going on mike here. graham was a good technician he was fine he was what like he, what he lacked was any personality which is kind of amazing because if you've seen his shoot interviews dude was not lacking for feistiness in real life oh no he would eventually get on a bunch of like wwe documentaries too because he'd be the guy willing to be like eric bischoff's a piece of shit <laughs> yeah uh Mike Graham claiming credit for everything in WCW is my favorite thing. Yeah, a guy who like tenuously had connections to anything that happened, and he'd be like, "Yeah, that was." I me. was the one who got Hogan. I was the one who got us in Disney. I came up with NWO. Yeah, everything was my because of Mike Graham. Nothing was his fault though. Is the amazing thing? Of course not. Yeah, <laughs> when things get wrong, went wrong. Those were the times they didn't listen to him. Mike Graham and Greg Gagne are the same person. You <laughs> yes, can't yeah. convince me otherwise. <sighs> um, Graham keeps working on Barr's leg with an Indian death lock. Um, Graham goes for the figure four, but Graham manages to slip out, or uh, Barr manages to slip out of the ring. They trade pinning combinations. Barr trips up Graham, pins him with his feet on the ropes. That was a solid little undercard match. This show could have used more matches like this. Yeah. There was nothing wrong with this match, which, given what we said about the show so far and what we're going to say about it, is a gigantic compliment. Um, then they show a recap of Ricky Steamboat and Dick Slater getting tuned up by Tully Blanchard, Ron Bass, and Black Bart. I loved Bass and Bart like holding, stringing him up so that Tully could hit him with a splash to the back. That was pretty brutal. I love the days when taking off your cowboy boot and beating somebody with it was like the Shit most brutal weapon. Because that's like, that's what happened in real bar fights in the South. Is when the cowboy boots came off, it was time to leave. <laughs> Just what a simpler time this was. You took your boot off and hit somebody with it. You could run with that for six months and draw money. Say, did you hear that Tully hit him with the goddamn boot? What a bastard. Yeah. Oh, my God. If he used a roll of quarters and somebody bled. 
But like, meanwhile, Gary Hart on the last show pulled out an actual knife and stabbed a guy. <laughs> Actually cut some people and like, yeah, it didn't really make any difference. Nobody cared. It's not not as good as a boot. Um, then we've got an elimination tag match as Buzz Tyler and the Assassin team against the Zambui Express. The Assassin, in the arc of every great wrestling heel, has gotten old and become a babyface. Which is funny, because, like, I've never seen a wrestler get fatter as he got older quite like Jody Hamilton did. It's like every year he, like, expands an inch, like a planet being born. So, like, he's not in particularly great shape here. I think he's, like, almost at the end of his career at this point. Oh, yeah. No, this is getting to be the end. Buzz Tyler is also a, you know, Crockett territory mainstay. Yeah. He's actually retires, like, one year later because they put a belt on him, and then he argues with Dusty over money and gets blackballed from the business. The Zambui Express are Elijah, Akeem, and Kareem Muhammad. Can you guess what their gimmick is? Yes. Guess what? All throughout the history of Southern wrestling, there's always been a team of black power people to scare the white folk. These guys are gigantic. Yeah, like these guys are like 6'5", 350, both of them. Yeah, they're enormous. Um, not much happens in this match. Tyler yeah. gets beaten up. Assassin pins one of the Zambui guys after a headbutt, and I guess the other one got counted out. It's not entirely clear, but it was announced as an elimination match, and the match just ends after the one fall, and the announcers struggle to explain what happened. I kind of feel like they just forgot that it was an elimination match. I did while I was watching it. Like, it didn't I, even occur to me. What's the point of a... Two-on-two tag elimination match. That's stupid. Especially if you're only going to give them five minutes. Like, what are you talking about? Don't do that. Oh, man. Uh, Then we go backstage where Shivani interviews Dusty Rhodes. Dusty promises to win the belt and says he's the prettiest man live in the universe, daddy. And that proves... Dusty Rhodes saying that out loud in front of people proves that you should have the confidence to say anything yes. about yourself. Because Dusty Rhodes is one of the ugliest men who have ever lived. <laughs> but God damn it, he had so much confidence he made you believe it. You know, listeners, there's probably some days where you're at your job and you're not sure if you're up to it. You have that imposter syndrome. Just give yourself the confidence of Dusty Rhodes saying he's the prettiest man alive. And like, trust me. He convinced enough truly gorgeous women over the course of his life of it that you should understand believing it is all that matters. And then we've got a match for the Brass Knuckles Championship. Yeah. Between Black Bart and the Raging Bull Manny Fernandez. Brass Knuckles is like a hardcore title. They've got their fists taped up. There's no disqualifications. In theory, this match should kick ass because yeah. Black Bart's actually pretty good, and Manny Fernandez has torn many a house down. Yeah, two good brawlers here. Um, but mm, but it's not mm, not so much. Lots of clubber in here. Yeah. 
Um, lots of punching, lots of blood. J.J. Uh, Dillon throws Bart's rope to him, but Fernandez catches him with an Oklahoma roll and pins him. So the street fight ends with a roll up. Yep. And not a particularly graceful one either. Um, it's intermission time, so they replay the finish from the Flair Harley match the previous year. And then Shivani interviews Steamboat, who is looking for revenge on Tully Blanchard. Then Shivani interviews J.J. Dillon and Tully Blanchard. They say that Steamboat is whining to make excuses because he's going to get beat tonight. And then we've got a loser leaves town tuxedo street fight between Paul Jones and Jimmy Valiant. We should probably That's mention a lot of gimmicks. I love a three line gimmick match. Jesus the idea Christ. of just just keep throwing shit in there. Why not? Come on. On a pole. What can yeah. we put on the pole? Could somebody have been in a shark cage? Oh my god, yes. And that's just the Dusty special. Is like every match needs to be... Like as much shit as Vince Russo gets, like Dusty was almost as bad with the gimmick matches. The thing that saved Dusty is that he would always come up with his own shit. Like he didn't just recycle shit from the past. Dusty wouldn't be happy unless he had invented an entirely new concept for every match on the card, which half of them were trash, poo-poo garbage, and half of them were iconic things that survive today. You can guess which one this is. Yeah. In fairness, the Jimmy Valiant is so over. Jimmy Valiant is wild over. And we should probably mention that, like, there's music on this show. Like, Entrance music has not yet really become, like, the fixture that it will become. But, like, most of the guys on this show have, like, some kind of music, right? When Jimmy's music hits, it gets two notes in and the fans blow the roof off the place. Boogie woogie, man. He's just, he's got, he's just nothing but charisma, man. Charisma and a beard. That's, that's Jimmy Valiant. The assassin comes out backing him up wearing a tuxedo, which just cracked me up. Oh, my God. It's such a messy tuxedo, too. I love it. Uh, Valiant's in control. Jones is helpless. Valiant strips Jones, but that is apparently not how you win this tuxedo match. I was so confused because I thought that's the only way you could win a tuxedo match. He strips Jones in the first 30 seconds. And I was like, wait, what? Um, the ref gets bumped. J.J. Dillon runs in. He hits Valiant with something, who knows what, and Jones is able to get the pin. And unfortunately, poor Jimmy Valiant has to leave town, never to be heard uh, from again. No, he's back the next year. Yeah, he is. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't even have to do the Charlie Brown thing this time. Eventually, they're going to have a hair versus hair match, which is like an iconic like moment in Southern wrestling. So that's coming up. Uh, then Shivani interviews Ric Flair, who says he'll still be the champion after tonight. And then we've got a match for the mid Atlantic heavyweight championship as Ron Bass defends against Dick Slater. Bass is both the mid Atlantic champion and one half of the tag champions with black Bart. There's something about the name Ron Bass that pisses me off. And I don't know what it is. It's just the worst wrestling name I can possibly think of. Ron Bass. The outlaw or cowboy here. Yes, of course. I just, 
I have watched randomly like 20 Ron Bass matches, and I couldn't even tell you what he looks like. He just does not leave an impression. It's really weird to see Dick Slater playing a babyface, but I actually thought he did a pretty good job here. He bumped his ass off in this match. Yeah. He was going like Shawn Michaels in this thing. Um, Bass is accompanied by J.J. Dillon. Slater starts off working a headlock. He hits an atomic drop. He does a bunch of headbutts, including the JYD one where he gets on all fours and like crawls into his opponent. I do love the idea that he was like, what the fuck babyface stuff do I know how to do? Well, I'll just do JYD stuff. Sure. It works. The ref stops Slater from stomping on Bass. That allows Bass to rake his eyes and take over. Bass hits a vertical suplex. Uh, Slater makes a comeback. The referee gets in his way, so Slater throws him out of the ring. Uh, Slater hits a back suplex. He covers, but Dylan runs in to break up the pin. Slater runs him off, but Slater then hits a body slam. He's got the match won, but the referee disqualifies him. Yep. (laughs) Pretty good match. Lame finish. I don't know. Is there a good finish on this entire show? No, there's not. I'm trying to think, does anything satisfying happen on this entire show? I can't even think of like a particularly clean finish that happens on this entire show. Well, no, because it's all heel wins and the heels are, of course, going to cheat. So, like, yeah. yeah, it's just a bunch of bullshit. I don't think I really realized, but yeah, it's basically all heel wins or like babyface roll ups and that's it. And then we get somebody playing the national anthem on a trumpet because we've got the Russians up next. At least we still got the lights on this time. They don't do the whole damn thing in the dark. Though we do pan to like a super yellow looking version of the American flag. Yeah. Um, so it's Ivan and Nikita Koloff against Ole Anderson and Keith Larson. This is this is a little bit of a weird one. Um, so the Koloffs turned on Don Kernodal after him and Ivan lost the tag belts to Dusty and Manny Fernandez. They broke his leg. So now um, Kernodal's real-life brother, Keith, and his friend, Ole Anderson, are fighting for revenge on his behalf, and Kernodal is in their corner. That's the weirdest shit, is that they chose to go out and get his actual real-life brother for this, who, as far as I can tell had, like, maybe five wrestling matches in his entire life. Looks great. He looks like a star. Yeah. I don't understand why they didn't do more with him, honestly. He's he's so insignificant, he literally doesn't have a Wikipedia page. Like, he doesn't exist. Is saying something for somebody who wrestled on a Starcade. Yeah. Like, I, I, I can't for the life of me figure out why more didn't come of this with him. Or at least some sort of tag team or something. Yeah. It's also weird that he's going by his real name. Whereas, of course, Don Kernodal is a stage name. So Gordon yes. explains that Don Kernodal is a stage name because Don didn't want to coast off his dad's name. But, like, why even explain it? Why not just make it Keith Kernodal? I don't... Yeah, I don't know. What's Very the benefit strange. of letting him go by his real name? <laughs> Unless they just didn't smarten him up to the business, which would be fucking hilarious. Is, I don't know. Like... It's it's a little late for that kind of stuff, but 
I don't know. I'm sure like Nikita didn't let him in on the fact that he wasn't actually Russian. But like the idea that you could get on a Starcade and not know shit about the business just because you happen to be a wrestler's brother. That's pretty funny. It's a different world back then. Um, Very weird. Very weird to see Ole playing a baby face. The whole match, even though it literally features evil Russians, I kept accidentally thinking that they were the baby faces. Yeah. Ole Anderson has never, ever been a baby face for one second of his life. Uh, the faces rush the heels. Ole and Larson both work on Ivan's arm. Larson misses a charge, and Ivan goes up to the top rope, but Larson's able to throw him off. Ole works the arm some more. But Ivan rakes his eyes and tags in Nikita. Uh, Nikita is undefeated and getting the Goldberg push to this point. He's unstoppable. Yes. And for good reason. Like, he looks awesome. Oh, my like God. It's, he's going to yeah. become a big, big star. Um, Nikita locks in the Russian bear hug. He ties, tags in Ivan, who slams Ole. Ole manages to make a hot tag to Larson. There's a big brawl. Nikita hits Kernodal with the Russian sickle out on the floor. Ivan gets a shot with Larson on Larson using his chain and gets the pin. Um, the Russians try to take some liberties after the match. Kernodal runs them off with his crutch. Got to find bright spots. That was a competently worked tag match. That was perfectly fine. The fans were into it. I mean, USA versus Russia was a no-brainer at the time. Like, it was going to get over despite itself. If I can find a bright spot, Nikita looked like a goddamn superstar. Man, he is built like a house. Yeah, he is. Um, Next up, we've got our World Television Championship match as Tully Blanchard defends against Ricky Steamboat. Lots of stipulations here. Both men have put up $10,000 of their own money. If Blanchard is disqualified or counted out, he loses the belt. And J.J. Dillon is banned from ringside. Basically, it's the only fair match that Ricky Steamboat will ever get in his entire run. Yeah, it's... Steamboat has to win here. Like, what a loser he would look like if he lost. Well, funny thing about that. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, the problem is he's about to leave for New York. Yeah, so basically they're just jabroninizing him on the way out. Um, Seaboat's entrance song sounds dubbed in, but whatever it is, it sounds awesome. Yeah, it does. I was rocking to this. Um, was this like a final countdown knockoff? Well, what he actually used to... Co- I mean, is he coming out to the song that the Chicago Bulls come out to in the I 90s? I don't know if he was using Sirius yet. I don't even know when that was released. That comes later. Okay. Because he always came out to songs that sounded vaguely like that until yeah. he landed on that one. Yeah. I don't even know. Let me see. Because I don't know how popular that song was before the Bulls started using it. And it was released in 82, so it could maybe he was already using Sirius at this point. Because I think he used it in the late 80s, so I think he predated the Bulls using it. So yeah, I think that's what this is, because it at least sounds pretty similar to what this, whatever this dubbed over stuff is. Uh, Steamboat starts fast, he locks in a chin lock, Blanchard gets in some shots on Steamboat's injured ribs. Uh, Steamboat manages to cinch in another chin lock, but 
Blanchard breaks it with a shot to the ribs and then a back suplex. Steamboat hits a big power slam for a two count. Uh, Steamboat with a 10 punch and Blanchard blades. It occurred to me midway through this match. This is the match that Steamboat should have had with Savage at WrestleMania three. Absolutely. Like as much as that's a great match. Like I think we've both had the criticism of it, that it doesn't really fit the story. Cause Steamboat doesn't wrestle vicious enough. Like this is the vicious Steamboat. I think we should have seen there. Yeah, and that the argument everybody gives is that Steamboat never wrestled like that. But if anything, this refutes that. He absolutely could do it. Yeah. Um, swinging neckbreaker from Steamboat still only gets two. Steamboat steals Blanchard's finisher, hits the slingshot suplex, still can only get a two count. Drop kick from Steamboat for another two count. Steamboat with a chop that sends Blanchard all the way out to the floor. Um, Blanchard pulls out his brass knuckles. Steamboat goes for a suplex. Blanchard gets the knuck shot. Um, Blanchard hits a crossbody, but Steamboat kicks out. Blanchard sets up for a superplex. Steamboat fights him off. Steamboat hits a splash that still only gets two. Steamboat with a sunset flip. Blanchard blocks it. Hits Steamboat with the loaded fist and pins him. It was a very good match. By far the best match of the night. If I were booking this show, and I was looking at this grim, horrible card that I had constructed, and I was trying to assign times to all the matches, it would constantly just be a process of being like, well, let's take away five more minutes from Brian Adias and Mr. Ito. <laughs> but it's only four minutes long. Just take yeah, it away. Now it's negative it one. Yeah. Yeah. Tully and Ricky get, let's see, two and a half hours. Okay, go for it. Yeah. It wouldn't have been as long as those Edge versus Orton matches. That is true. But this match is great. I could have easily watched another 15 minutes of this match. Like, like these guys had great chemistry. They could go all night. Just fucking give them the time. <sighs> Much worse is the following <laughs> <match>. <laughs> The United States Championship, we've got Wahoo McDaniel versus superstar Billy Graham. Billy Graham in 1984, this is one of several disastrous comeback attempts. He's become a kung fu master for some reason. He's shaved his head, he has a mustache, and he wears karate pants and a black belt now. It's grim. He becomes a karate master out of spite to Vince Sr., who doesn't see him as a baby face, because there's nothing more baby ish than an old white karate instructor. <laughs> oh, my God. How could he have thought this was a good idea? I have no idea. Uh, Wahoo is still around. It's actually incredible, because Wahoo actually didn't wrestle for all that long, but I feel like he was just never... He technically wrestled from, like, 1961 to 1996. It was a football player for most of that time. Yeah, exactly. And he only really wrestle-wrestles for, like, maybe 10 years. He had a long NFL career before he got into wrestling full-time. He was just one of those guys who wrestled in the offseason. I feel like he's just always here, just on cards doing jack shit. Well, he's the U.S. champ, and he's turned heel because he says he's being mistreated as a Native American, which checks out. Sure. 
Um, Graham is able to lock in a full Nelson, but Wahoo gets to the ropes. Wahoo catches him with a big chop as he's coming off the ropes and gets the pin in less than five minutes. Fuck you, superstar. You would think that this was Billy Graham's fuck you retirement match. He still makes another comeback oh, in 87. Yeah. He's on Starcade the year after this, believe it or not. Fuck me. Like, there's no more juice left in this asshole. None. You know, it's so bad. And he fucking wins next year. We'll get to that, but... Yeah. Oh... We've got another intermission, so they replay the Starcade 83 finish again. Might as well have just shown the whole match. It was better than any match on this show. Agreed. Um, Shivani interviews our judges for tonight's main event. We've got NASCAR star Kyle Petty, Smokin' Joe Frazier, who will also serve as the referee, and Japanese wrestling legend Duke Kyoto. Yeah. I have. I don't, I don't know how Joe Frazier is going to both be a judge and referee the match. Yeah, that's pretty hard, right? Dubious. Like, yeah, I don't like that. It's it's a sign of things to come. It was so hard up for money, he needed the two paychecks, I guess. Yeah, guys, Joe Frazier's not doing great at this point. <laughs> He's not a good referee. Do you think they smart and smoking Joe up? Mm. They, he, yeah, because of the finish, they actually have to. <laughs> I mean, they explained to him what they needed to explain to him, but I don't know how much they smartened him up. It could just be if somebody starts bleeding really bad, you need to stop the match. Yeah. And then like, magically it happened. It's not like you can tell a trained boxer like, yeah, Joe, they're fighting for real. Like he's in the ring. Like he knows. Um. So, yeah, main event time. It's the match the world has come to see for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. Nature Boy Ric Flair defends against the American Dream Dusty Rhodes. Dusty gets an awesome entrance here as the lights go down and smoke comes out of the tunnel. Flashing lights. This is super cool for 1984. Yeah. You can almost tell that he watched last year and was just like, fuck you, Flair. I'm going to do way better than that. He does it. It's it's cool. It's not quite as cool as the year before, but like it's it's very cool. Flair's out second in a beautiful pink robe. God damn that man could dress himself. Yeah. Man. And he's looking more like himself. Like the year before he just looked like kind of like a dude in a fancy robe. He's he's looking like Flair here. Yeah. You know you know what I mean? He's solidified on top now. He's yeah. been Yeah. He's been making uh, that top guy money for a year now. As a reminder, Joe Frazier's our special referee. Um, I thought the receptions were interesting. Did it feel like Dusty got a lot of boos? Yes, it did. Yeah. The crowd I, was siding with Flair. Yeah. I, I wonder if the fans in the good seats are probably more likely to be the Flair fans because they're the diehards who paid the big prices for the tickets. Yeah. Dusty's fans are probably up in the upper deck. But also, like, Dusty's super over. Don't, let's not get it twisted. I'm not suggesting anything otherwise. But Dusty's biggest moments are still to come. Of, like, being, like, the beloved baby face. Like, the guy. 
He's like, kind of the new kid in town. He's only been in Crockett for a year at this point, whereas Flair's been there for years. Yeah, until the horsemen form and turn on him, he's not really the top baby face. So, like, that's still to come. Yeah, I was, but I was surprised that Flair seemed to get the more positive reception because he's more naturally the heel here. Yeah, but, I mean, especially when you look at, like, if we're taking this as a through line from last year's main event, he is the baby face of this company. Yeah. They've... They cemented him as, like, the the sting of this time, you know? Uh, Dusty starts fast with a big elbow, and he applies a headlock. Flair with a right hand. He goes for a knee drop, but Dusty moves, and Dusty locks in the figure four. Flair's able to get to the ropes. Dusty stays on the leg as the announcer calls five minutes gone by. Um, Dusty with another elbow and a press slam, almost like a press power slam. Yeah, that shit that was, was cool. Yeah. You, you don't think of him as being a guy who has power, but that was pretty good. Uh, Dusty sends Flair into the corner. Flair goes over the top with the Flair flip. Uh, Flair catches Dusty with a back elbow. He goes up to the top, but Dusty throws him off. Uh, Dusty misses an elbow drop. Flair gets him in a sleeper hold. Dusty uses a leverage move to send Flair out to the floor. Um Dusty goes down to the floor. They fight, and Dusty comes up with a nasty gash over his right eye. Didn't quite see how this happened. Neither did I. Um, Camera didn't really catch what had supposedly happened here to cause this. They do a good job with the cut, because it doesn't doesn't look like a blade job per se. It literally looks like a freak accident cut has happened, which is important, because, like, you can't sell the match if it's just, like, a normal forehead blade job is being like, all right, well, they would just keep going. This one looks like he might lose his eye. Like, it's yeah, he's bad. He's got a nasty gash over his right eye here. So, yeah, did he just, like, stab himself with a blade over the eye? I kind of feel like he did, which is maybe fucking Flair, nuts. Maybe he had Flair do it for him, but, yeah, like, ooh, squeamish about that. Yeah, exactly. Flair goes after the cut, like, just starts clawing at this thing. It's brutal. Like, this is some nasty Abdullah the Butcher shit. Dusty fires up, but Flair cuts him off. Frazier checks on the cut and stops the match. Kind of a letdown for the ending of the biggest match of the year to have it be a referee stoppage. Um, But had to get out of this somehow, and neither guy was going to get beat by the other here. The confusing thing for the crowd is that it stops by referee stoppage, but there's not a lot of history of that in wrestling at this point. Like, this, that wasn't a normal thing to happen. Yeah, okay. So when Flair leaves with the belt, people are like, wait. Yeah, did Dusty give up? Like, what the hell happened? Yeah, it doesn't seem like it makes sense. And like, Unless the fans I missed it, they didn't really announce the decision. No. Like, yeah. imagine you drove 180 miles from West Virginia to come you know watch this show. Did. Yeah. We watched them last year. They, There are 16,000 people in these seats. They came from miles around to watch the show to see the epic clash between Dusty and Rick. It's 12 minutes long, and it ends seemingly randomly out of nowhere. And you don't know why. Because, especially if you're in the cheap seats, you don't know that Dusty's got a nasty cut over his no. eye. Like, maybe you see that there's blood, but there's always blood in the main events. All of a sudden, the match just ends and Rick leaves. What could you have done here? That's tough. 
how do you get out of this? Do you do the classic Dusty finish where Dusty beats him, but foot was under the rope or the referee was bumped and it's a disqualification, something like that? I mean, that's definitely the most, like, Dusty made a career out of using that to get out of situations like this. That's why it's called the Dusty finish. You make the fans happy, but then you go back to business as usual. I mean, I think an issue here is that you're not going to get a match out of Joe Frazier. Like, he's not. Did they think they were going to get a match out of this? It seems like, it really seems like it based on the way, what they do after this, but it just, I don't think he was capable of doing it. I mean, he had had a long, rough boxing career. Yeah, because they all cut promos after the show was over, and Joe Frazier cuts a promo that makes you think they're getting a match. Yeah. So I think this is more workable if the referee is anybody that you can actually get a match out of. Because, I don't know, that feels like something to kind of hot to come back with is Dusty versus the referee who screwed him over and stopped the fight. Oh, yeah. You have Dusty work like a six-month program with that, and then you come right back around for the rematch, Flair versus Dusty for real. And then you do the whole what they wind up doing, which is an amazing angle, and they got to yeah. do that, obviously, but... To steal a finish that hasn't happened yet. Could do the WrestleMania 13 finish here. Oh, where he passes out? Yeah, he passes out from blood loss in the figure four. Flair wins, but Dusty didn't quit. That's interesting. I wonder how that would have played at this time. Yeah, I don't know. That's, that's it's another good, like it's also, yeah, it would be another controversial ref stoppage. It's just without it being without television and cameras and like titantrons and stuff, it's so hard to get across to the crowd yeah. that that's something that has happened. You know, the other problem is with the figure four. If you passed out, you'd be pinned because your shoulders would be flat on the mat. That's true. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a tough situation to be in because like can't really have either guy beat the guy. I mean, another thing you could do. You could just have some heels show up, interfere in the match, and Flair and Dusty fight them off. But then they end up getting into it, and you just end the show with a brawl. That's the Hogan finish. Whenever Hogan couldn't think of a way to f- that he could agree with, he'd just be like, well, let's just me and the guy fight every heel on the roster together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I, don't have a, I don't think any of these are great ideas. I don't think there's a great solution to this one. Yep. Other than... Maybe the solution is, what if this was Flair's heel turn? But could you hold off for a year before you got back to it? I don't think you could. When do they actually do the turn? When do they form the Horsemen? September 85. Okay, so... It's a while off. It's... mm, I wonder... Because, like, what makes that special is the wild, out-of-control heat that spans from it, right? You could, I mean, maybe this, yeah, if this was where the horsemen form, Flair wins because of interference from all the bad guys. And then Dusty can have to fight his way through the horsemen to get to Flair. The fabulous thing about that is, like, it wouldn't even seem like a stable was forming there because Ole and Tully and Arn don't even seem like here yet. Yeah. Yeah. But Ole and Tully literally have no communication. One's a babyface, one's a heel. So if you just showed them at ringside, you'd be like, why are those guys here? Yeah. 
it would never occur to you that that's what was going to happen. Yeah. So that yeah, would be cool. That works for me because then you've got, you know, come back a couple months, come back in three months to the Coliseum for Dusty versus Tully and then Dusty versus Ole, Dusty versus Arn, and like finally after he's beaten all those guys, he can get to Flair for the rematch. That works for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, Flair leaves the ring, is handed the belt and a check because he won the million dollars. He is handed literally a check like you would write to the grocery store. <laughs> yes. Like it's that tiny little payroll check. I hope this was his actual payoff for whatever he got for this show. I just love that idea. It's just like, I, I how do you not make this a big, gigantic million dollar check? Oh my God. Check? Yeah. How did they not do a giant blown up novelty check here? I just can't understand it. It makes no sense to me. Like that's the whole idea is that the purse. Yeah. I would have just given him like a physical a purse with some jangling gold coins in it. Yeah, um, just a big sack of cash. What a briefcase. Yeah, I mean you can have, you know, a couple. You can have hundreds on top, and it can be fake after that. Like, yeah, you know a giant what? I, briefcase of cash. I wish they had done the heel turn, and I wish the end promo for Flair had just been him and the Horseman in the locker room just throwing Scrooge cash up in McDuck the air. In it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in the visual of. Um, you know, in the World Series of Poker, when they get down to the final two guys, yeah, and they bring like they bring the boxes of cash and the armed guards, and they dump it all on the like. There's so much imagery you could do with this. Yeah, yeah. They do none. They write a, a literal <laughs> payroll check to Flair for a for, million dollars yeah. for five thousand dollars or whatever his actual payoff was tonight. It was probably a pretty good payoff. I'm sure they did like a $500,000 gate here. I just re- love the idea of it being like Flair looking down at the check he's presented with and it says 5,000 and the memo line, it says, LOL, we mean a million. <laughs> this is a story I heard about Kamala, who's at the beginning of his career. He was Sugar Bear Harris and he was booked in a battle royal and it was like a $10,000 battle royal. And he won, and he got his payoff for the night, and it was like 250 bucks. And he was like, but I thought it was a $10,000 battle royal. <laughs> it's like, I bought new tires for my car. Aww. <laughs> Poor guy. Oh, boy, this business. <laughs> <laughs> um... So then we get a post-match interview with Flair backstage. Flair says it's unfortunate that it had to end on a referee stoppage, but it's not his problem that Flair stopped the match. He's, you know, the proud owner of the NWA World Heavyweight Championship and a certified check for $1 million. Woo! He's not a heel yet. But but he's yeah. showing signs. He doesn't give a shit that Dusty got cut. Tough shit, Dusty. Yeah, he's not. This isn't a heelish promo either. Nothing he says is heelish, but like that attitude is creeping in. You can see where he's eventually going to get to the point where he's like, "I love this lifestyle too much. I'm willing to do anything to keep it." 
And then there's an interview with Dusty, who's got his head just, like, comically wrapped with a towel. Like he's the goddamn Yeti. <laughs> um, he's just ranting and raving. It's like, he's never had a match stopped before. We don't do that in wrestling. Joe Frazier, you cost me the world title and a million dollars. Like I said, it really seems like they're building to a match there. <laughs> And then we interview Joe Frazier, and Frazier defends his decision to stop the match. He says, you know, he was doing his job. That was a bad cut. Dusty could have lost his eye. You know, that's can't be responsible for that. When they put a microphone in Joe Frazier's face, I was expecting the worst. Yeah, it's a good promo. It's a good promo. Like, it, he seems genuinely, you know how celebrities are. Like, they do. Usually just be like, yeah, you got cut, man. I don't know, whatever. But no, he's just like, look, this is my responsibility to make sure that he keeps safety. In boxing, it's a little bit different than in wrestling. We'd worry about the boxer safety first and foremost. Like He literally gets into the details of why, if this were real, he would have made this decision. I love it. It was great. I would have loved to have seen that match. Like, it's it's a bummer we didn't get it. I get why, because he's... He doesn't have it in him. Yeah. No, wasn't going to happen. But, like, I can see why they think that they might get that out of him. It seems like he's game for it. So, yeah, that's a wrap for Starcade 84. Um, sequels rarely live up to the original, and uh, this was one of those cases. Man, this show sucks ass. This is... Maybe my least favorite show we've ever done. It's up there, man. I hated every miserable, soul-sucking, jabroni-filled second of it. I've never used the word jabroni more than twice in a podcast. I've used it like 40 times in this one. Yeah, this was not a good show. The main event was okay with an unsatisfying finish. Steamboat and Blanchard was good, but didn't really like the finish there either. Just top to bottom, a bad, bad show here. You know what? I'm prone to hyperbole. Let me take that back because some of those Summer Slams we covered <laughs> that nearly, was the most nearly destroyed this podcast. The most miserable six months of my wrestling watching life. Like I, every week, I would show up and just tell Steve, like, "Why are we doing this? Why? What? Do, what is this for?" Oh, man, the Summer Slams are not good. Jesus Christ. Never watch the first five Summer Slams. Never, ever, ever do it. Yeah, just start with 92. Jesus. And then, honestly, skip the couple after that, too. Yeah, just skip to, like, 98 after that. Oh, okay. All right, we got through 84. Um, Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Um, Yeah. Hope you're celebrating uh, safely and responsibly. Um, Next time, which will be tomorrow, I guess, we'll be dropping Starcade 85. Much better Starcade with uh, Flare Dusty Round 2. This is the Four Horsemen. This is Hard Times. Uh, This is when they split the card up between Greensboro and Atlanta. We've got the Rock and Roll Express against the uh, against the Koloffs. Um, got uh, Magnum TA versus Tully Blanchard in one of the most brutal matches I've ever seen. An I Quit Steel Cage match. 
for as much as we bagged on Dusty Rhodes for his weird booking here, next week is when we reckon, or tomorrow, is when we reckon with his genius. This is one of his magnum opus shows. Where, like, it's not necessarily the greatest show from top to bottom, but it's brimming with ideas, and it's, like, the absolute just attempt at something gigantic here with like the two places and like crazy main events and arguably the bloodiest show in American wrestling history. Yeah. Yeah. Blood in like every single match, but yeah. Um, all that and more next time on the law cast, as always, thank you for listening. We'll see you again next time.